Welcome back, and welcome to our storytelling interview with John Tilley, who is here with his wife, Wanda, as mentioned during the story. Uh, Wanda, would you stand up and turn towards the camera and give a wave so we can all have a chance to see you? Thank you so much. We haven't seen you yet. We'll keep trying. There we go. Wanda, yay! <laughs> You're a good sport. Thanks so much. <clears throat> John, you and I actually go back to the early days of True Tales, back when we were at the community radio station, and you and I shared the stage at Act One on, in 2016. That's true. And uh, we were both on uh, Act One stage, so we're glad to have you with us. Um, I want to have a chance to talk a little bit about storytelling and uh, some of your background. Um, you were a lawyer for 32 years, as Pat mentioned. And uh, it occurs to me that uh, there probably is some relationship between your work as an attorney and storytelling. In particular, it occurs to me that if you're a trial attorney, that the winners are the ones who tell the best stories. But I suspect there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, tell us a little about your journey between uh, lawyering and storytelling. Well, you're exactly right that uh, a trial attorney is a storyteller but he has to tell the story through other people, as we call witnesses. And sometimes that story goes well, and sometimes the witnesses don't exactly tell the story the way that you hope that they do. <laughs> a, a trial is really two versions of the same story, and the attorney's job then is to hopefully direct that story uh, in such a way that the jury believes your particular version of the story rather than the other side. And is it fair to say that the winners are the best storytellers or is that a little oversimplification? I uh, told some really good stories and lost <laughs> and uh, told some really poor stories and occasionally won. So you never know. The, the outcome of a trial is, uh, is, is one of the more difficult things to sit through. Really? Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you've put your client's story at issue, right, and you right. hope to convince 12 people that you don't know, and none of them know your client, that their story is the one that should prevail. And uh, waiting for those 12 people to come back with their decision uh, can be difficult. I would think so. Now, do they teach you about storytelling in uh, law school in Houston, is that part of the curriculum? Or is that something you sort of figure out on the job? Well, I mean, certainly we had classes in persuasion and in argumentation, uh, but not everyone is a storyteller, and those people write trusts and wills. <laughs> and the, well, the, I wondered about that. The people who have some ability to navigate a story, uh, end up in the courtroom. So did you realize early on, or maybe even from childhood, that you had, a, I don't know if you'd call it a gift, but an interest in the storytelling aspect of the law? How did you, how did you come to that? I, I, I don't think that I, growing up, thought enough about being an attorney or the role of storytelling in that. I think that just evolved as as you do it and you end up in a courtroom and realizing I've got a story to tell, what is the best way to do it? 
and sometimes you do it well and sometimes you don't. <laughs> well, I'm interested in that. My career was as a Unitarian Universalist minister, and of course, clergy are all about storytelling. I mean, that's what the texts are about. There's, right. there's stories that are given a particular interpretation. So I appreciate the importance of storytelling. Now, how did you, so then how did you evolve into actually doing the storytelling? I mean, you did a wonderful story tonight and we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, but that's a kind of a journey too. Was it something, you, did you do that, before, start doing storytelling before you retired or as you retired? I, not, not, not this kind of formal storytelling, no. I had, Wanda and I had the good fortune to buy a house next door to Pat Spaulding. And one of the early things that we learned from her is her involvement in True Tales Live. And she said, do you have a story? And I said, maybe. And I wrote it out and I showed it to her and we worked on it together. And I think this is maybe the fourth or fifth story that I've told either on the radio or here uh, at, the, at the television station. Well, let's make that a little bit more frequent, what do you say? <laughs> we do appreciate that. Now, I take it that there's a story in the journey from Texas to the seacoast of New Hampshire as well. Um, <clears throat> I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island, so I'm an East Coast guy all the way through. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the journey, and perhaps you could also enlighten us as to misconceptions about Texas that Easterners <laughs> generally hold. No, no, <laughs> we'll soon find out. Well, interesting, May, uh, our friends that came along with us tonight spent a lot of their uh, careers on the North Shore of Long Island, so you could probably have some stories to, <laughs> to share as well. Uh, it's a small world and getting smaller <laughs> by the minute. So, I mean, I, the, that the story that I told tonight basically explains why we are here. Uh, I mean, it was 40 years ago, and Wanda, ex early on in our relationship, expressed her desire to live in New Hampshire again because she had such a good experience here in the early 70s uh, when she lived here before. And her daughter, Heather, that I mentioned in the story, was actually born in Kittery. So even though she's basically a lifelong Texan, she can tell everyone, I was born in Kittery, Maine. And most of them don't know where that is. <laughs> but it was, it was always a dream that we had. And uh, you know, we were both in school at the time. To say that we had no money was an understatement. <laughs> um, but then we began vacationing up on the seacoast regularly. We would go to the places that she had been before, uh, walked through her old neighborhood on Wyberd Street. And as the, the careers progressed, uh, it got more and more likely that we could retire here. And we were very fortunate uh, at the end of 2014 when I did stop practicing law in Texas that we were able to purchase a house here. And we're spend as much time in Portsmouth and Rye as we possibly can. But you also commute somewhat back and forth. We to do, because we still have our house in Irving, which again is a suburb of Dallas, and we're not making a clean break, mainly because there is a two, two-year-old granddaughter who lives two blocks away from us. And Molly has a magnetism 
that's not going to allow us to move up here full time anytime <laughs> soon. That sounds wonderful. Are there any uh, misconceptions about Texas that we Easterners need to be disabused of? Not everybody in Texas is a Republican. That's right, you did mention that. I wondered if there was others as well. Many of them are. Um, Texas politically is a very interesting state. I'm very interested to see what happens in this upcoming election. No kidding. Uh, Texas is blue from the top to the bottom through the middle. Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Laredo, the I-35 corridor is all Democrats. East Texas and West Texas, the other two-thirds of the state, is totally red. The, the county that I grew up in, in far West Texas, in the last election voted 88% Republican. So there is just not a lot of diversity in the western part and in the eastern part of the state but the middle, the metropolitan part of Texas is, is, is blue and maybe has a chance to actually swing Texas back Democratic, which it has not been since 1990. Wow, that would be amazing. Yeah. I don't know much about Texas, but I do read a little bit. I get the impression that um, the Latino community is making a difference in the Texas politics. Latino community is very large in Texas. Uh, in the town Irving where we live, our youngest daughter is a school teacher. She teaches eighth grade uh, in, a, in, in, in a middle school, and that school is 98% Hispanic. Wow, really? Yeah. Well, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk a little bit about storytelling, since that's why we're all here. <laughs> um, how do you approach story? Do you do the same approach each time, or does it depend on the nature of the story? And I, I don't know process? that I do it. I, and and I, Wanda and I have talked about this San Francisco story, well, for the last 40 years. And she has asked me on several occasions, why don't you tell that story at True Tales Live? And I just said, you know, I have the story in my mind, I just can't fit it, I don't know how to fit it into a context. And a couple of weeks ago, or last month, Pat said, hey, we, we need a storyteller in January, the topic is good accidents. Do you have a story about a good accident? And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so I then went home and wrote down the story that we have been talking about for all these years. So there wasn't much creative process in this because we had already worked out what the story was. It was mainly just typing. So it's sort of like you rehearsed that story during the course of your lives together. I think that's an accurate thing to say, David. You know it inside and out. Right. Now, when you, so, when you prepare a story, do you write it out by hand? You mentioned that you type it out. Do you always type it out? Do you rehearse the story? I generally have thought about the story enough that I don't have to do a lot of editing. 
that the story kind of flows as I'm typing. I don't do a lot of editing. It's just a peculiarity to me. I have thought about it so much before I begin writing that I don't have to go back and rewrite that much. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> My way of approaching storytelling is to type it all out pretty much word for word. And I, what I know about myself is that I try to write the way I breathe. So if a sentence is too long to say on a single breath, then its sentence needs to be carved up. That's a good point. And I actually sent this story to a few friends of mine who actually don't know each other, but whose judgment I trust. And I said, here's my latest story. I would like your thoughts on it. And remember, this is not a written story. This is an oral story. So listen to it orally as you read it. It makes perfect sense to me. Well, this does bring us to the end of our interview with John. Thank you so much for joining in this conversation. Thank you, David. And this brings us as well to our show's close. Our thanks to the True Tales Live team, Sam Adams, Amy Antonucci, Sarah Bedingfield, Steve Koval, John Lovering, and Pat Spaulding. And thanks to the entire PPM-TV crew, Chad Cordner, Executive Director. Our next True Tales Live show, as Amy mentioned, is February 25th on the theme of Acting for Justice. And if you have a story that's on the Acting for Justice theme, there's room on our schedule. And if you're considering telling a story, we strongly encourage you to attend one of our workshops. Uh, but do know that workshopping a story does not automatically mean that you have to tell it on stage. Workshops are a great, great way to try out a story, try out storytelling. They're free, they're fun, and to sign up, you can email us at truetaleslivenh1 at gmail.com. Our next workshop is next Tuesday, the 4th, from 7.20 to 9 p.m. And to keep up with all things True Tales Live, you can sign up for our e-newsletter, True Tales Times, for info on shows and workshops and other events. Sign up online at truetaleslivenh.org. My name is David Frainer. Thank you, and good night.